Turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. We'll be starting in verse 15 this morning. Galatians chapter 3, verse 15. Here's what it says. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Amen. You may be seated. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come now to your word together. We come to your word, Lord, as we just sang, longing for you to speak to us from it. We come in faith, knowing that your word is living and active. So, Lord, speak to us this morning by the power of your spirit. Illuminate our minds so that we can understand your word Speak through me this morning, Father, the gospel of Christ Jesus, and edify our hearts, Father, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we are are beginning to dive into one of the most, I think, one of the most interesting sections of Galatians, Paul's discussion of the Christian's relationship to the law. Or to put it more generally, the kind of the question he's getting at here is, is how are we as Christians supposed to read and relate to the Old Testament law? How do law and gospel interact? Now, if you've read the Old Testament, I'm sure that you've asked these questions. If you've gone through your yearly Bible reading plan and you get to Leviticus and you start to read about these strange laws, shellfish and clothing with two fabrics and stoning adulterers and disobedient children, things like this, the natural question to ask is, well, what do these have to do with me? How am I supposed to relate to these commandments? Are they binding? Are they Uh, completely abolished. It seems like Jesus said they're not abolished. What is going on here? How do we relate to these? Well, in this sermon, and really in in the next couple of sermons, Paul begins to answer some of these questions. And so what we see in this text is Paul's rational, rationale, and his reasoning for the position he's going to take. And this is, this is really interesting. Galatians gives us a unique perspective into Paul's thinking and how Paul, the apostle, reads and understands the Old Testament. The apostle's inspired understanding of the Old Testament neither ignores it or gets rid of it, 
nor idolizes it, but rather understands it correctly, that is, through the lens of Jesus Christ. And so if we, as we should, want to read and understand the Old Testament, the law, we must also learn to read it like the apostle. And so that's what we're going to get to see this morning. Now, to understand what Paul is doing here in Galatians, we need to understand one of his biggest problems in life. And what is that? One of Paul's biggest problems and the thing that eventually led to his arrest and execution was that the Jews were constantly accusing him of teaching people to ignore the law of Moses. Okay, so everywhere Paul went, he would go as a missionary. The first place he would go in a city, he would go into the synagogue, the gathering uh, of the Jewish people. He would preach to them from the Old Testament. He would reason with them from the scriptures, trying to show them that Jesus was the Messiah prophesied about in the Old Testament scriptures. We saw this, if you were with us, our last dinner in discourse, Pastor Rudolph basically took us through exactly how he did this. Paul would preach from the Old Testament that to be saved, they must place their faith in Christ. He preached from the Old Testament that nothing else was required for salvation but faith in Christ. And most provocatively, he even taught that even Gentiles, non-Jews, could be saved by faith in Christ without becoming Jews, without obeying the Mosaic law. Now, that message was not received well by the unbelieving Jews of the day. And so they were constantly, when they heard Paul say this, they didn't hear the gospel. They didn't hear the good news. They heard Paul basically saying, you know, the Old Testament law is not important. You should just get rid of it. Acts 21, verse 28, gives us a little insight into this. This is the, the Jews are crying out, and this is what they say. Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people, the Jews, and against the law, and against this place, the temple. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. So the unbelieving Jewish mind hears what Paul is saying, the gospel, and says he's teaching people against the Jews, he's teaching people against the law, and he's teaching against the temple. That was the accusation. Now, that wasn't true, but that was the accusation. And Paul is essentially facing a very similar accusation here in Galatia. These false teachers have come into the church that he planted. <coughs> Excuse me. They have convinced the Galatian church, these Gentiles, that they need to obey the law to be saved. They need to understand the Mosaic law circumcision, Sabbath-keeping, food laws, and they need to now start living according to that in order to truly be the people of God, in order to truly be the people of Abraham. That is the issue here. And so what we get in Galatians 3 is Paul's positive understanding of what did the Old Testament teach about these things. So again, these false teachers were teaching to be saved, to be righteous before God. Someone must believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Yeah, you need to have faith in Jesus, but you also must obey the law. Both of these things work together. Faith and works of the law are how you are saved. Paul has been saying, no, actually that's a false gospel. And if you believe that, and if you teach that, you stand condemned before God. But again, 
Think of what's going on. The false teachers kind of have rhetoric on their side. It's very easy for them to characterize what Paul is saying. Now, they're wrongly characterizing it, but it's very easy for them to say, guys, Paul's teaching you to ignore the commandments of God. That's not a safe thing to do. And so Paul here is justifying why he has taught these Gentiles that they do not need to obey the law to be saved. Now, his main argument in this whole section is that justification is by faith alone, not by works, not by law obedience. And he's really given us kind of three arguments towards this end. The first argument was in chapter 3, verse 1 through 5. He said, look, Galatians, how did you receive the Spirit? Was it by works of the law or by faith? The answer was by faith. And his point was simply, if you receive the Spirit by faith, you're already part of the people of God. The Spirit is the thing that marks you off as the people of God. You don't need to be circumcised. You don't need to obey the law now. His second argument in verses 6 through 9, Abraham was justified by faith in God. Therefore, to be a part of his family, you need to believe just like Abraham did. And if you believe, if your faith is in Christ, then you are just as much a son of Abraham as anyone else. The children of Abraham are those who are children of of faith. And then his third argument we saw last time we were in Galatians essentially was the law itself taught us all of this. Paul showed us last time with six quotations from the Old Testament law that the law itself teaches that those who try to obey it to be righteous before God stand condemned because they cannot keep it perfectly, which is what the law requires. Paul showed us that there was only one who kept it perfectly, Jesus Christ. He obeyed it. He fulfilled it by dying on the cross. And oh, by the way, Paul says, the whole point of Jesus was to bring the promises of Abraham to the Gentiles who believe in him by faith. That's where Paul has been going. And now we get to see his further reasoning on this question. So he's made that case. Well, now the question begins to become, okay, Paul, again, kind of from the Jewish mindset, if the law is not, we don't have to obey the law to be saved. Well, then what, how does that interact with God's promises? And what is even the purpose of the law? Paul lets us know. So he's going to give us kind of a three-step argument on why the Abrahamic covenant, the promises that God made to Abraham supersede and are above and beyond anything that the law requires. So the first step in this argument is, is going to be this. Paul's going to teach us that God's promises are irrevocable and unchangeable. Look at verse 15. He says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Simple and straightforward point. Even humans, once you promise something, you can't change it later. And this is especially true when it comes to covenants. I mean, you see his reasoning here. Even sinful human beings, we understand that once you promise something, especially in a legally binding way, which is essentially what a covenant is, you can't change it later. You can't add conditions to it later that were never there in the first place. And if you do, you're essentially lying, right? If I tell my kids, I promise I'll take you to the park later today, and then it comes time to go to the park, and I say, well, you didn't do your homework. They said, but you just said you would take us to the park. Well, you should have done your homework. That's, that's, that's not fair. That's lying. And Paul's saying, by way of implication, 
That's not how God is. But we need to take a minute here to talk about this idea of covenant. Because this is a word that we don't use in our everyday life. At least not me. Maybe you do. I don't know. But it's in a concept that is, I don't know if anything could be more central to understanding the, the story of Scripture. Covenant is absolutely essential to understanding the Scripture. So what is a covenant in the Bible? A simple definition could go something like this. A covenant is a binding agreement that establishes a relationship between two or more people. Usually with penalties, uh, if one of the parties fails to uphold their side of the covenant. Okay? We saw last week in Genesis, a man-made covenant. A covenant that Abimelech made with Isaac to not be enemies any longer. So that's just an example of a man-made covenant. They covenanted together. They had a meal that kind of symbolized the, and ratified their covenant to no longer be enemies. To break that would be to come under the penalty and the penalty of death, usually, in a covenant. This concept is crucial because in God's wisdom, in God's sovereignty, covenant is how God has determined to relate to us as his creatures. Covenant is how God relates to humans. He relates to us through covenants. His promises come to us in the form of covenants. The book of Hebrews tells us that this is because he loves us and he knows that we need something to see and touch that display his faithfulness to us. So God relates to us through covenants. You saw that in Genesis 15 with Abraham. God does not need to relate to us this way, but again, out of his grace, he condescends to us and relates to us in covenant. He could have just come to Abraham in Genesis 15 and said, I promise you'll have this land. It's God's word. Of course, it's going to be fulfilled, but out of his condescension to us, out of his grace, he went through the whole vision and ceremony to show Abraham tangibly that this was a sure thing. The, the 1689 Baptist Confession, a uh, wonderful Baptist Confession, just distills this wonderfully, this concept. This is what it says. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience to him as their creator, yet they could never have attained the reward of life but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. This is how God reveals himself to us in covenants. Now, like I said, there are plenty of human covenants in the Bible, but the most important covenants, of course, are the covenants that God makes with humanity. God makes with humans, and there are many. God covenanted with Adam. He covenanted with Noah. He covenanted with Abraham. We saw that in Genesis 15. He covenanted with Isaac. He covenanted with Israel through Moses. That's the Mosaic covenant. He covenanted with David. And ultimately, he covenants with us through Jesus Christ and what the Bible calls the new covenant. What we do when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're renewing, celebrating the renewal of the new covenant. The entire narrative of the Bible rests on the idea of covenant. Our very understanding of salvation, our, our salvation itself is founded and grounded in this idea of covenant. So we've got to understand it. Now, out of all of these, these covenants are different. They're not all the same. They kind of fall into two general categories. Covenants, where God promises things, 
without any conditions and covenants that come with conditions. Covenants based on works and covenants based on blessings, you might say. (coughs) Excuse me. Now, understanding that is going to be very important to Paul's point because what we're seeing in this text is there's two covenants at work. There's the Mosaic covenant, think Sinai, where God gives the law, and there's the Abrahamic covenant, the one we saw in Genesis 15. Paul is explaining to us in this text how we are to see the interaction between those two things. Here's the problem. The Mosaic covenant has requirements. You must do this if you are to live. Circumcision, Sabbath keeping, food laws. The Abrahamic Abrahamic covenant has no conditions. You saw that in Genesis 15. God came down and just said, Abraham, this is what I'm going to do. I am going to bless you. So here's the disagreement between Paul and these false teachers. Paul is saying the new covenant is essentially the Abrahamic covenant fulfilled. There are no conditions. You believe in Jesus Christ, you are saved. The false teachers are saying, no, the new covenant is just like the Mosaic covenant. You have to obey all the laws. That's the disagreement. So before we move on, let's understand this point here. Because this whole idea of covenant really explains something about the very nature of God to us. Listen to Paul's point. What, what, again, what he's implying in verse 15. Even human covenants are, are unchangeable and certain once they are ratified in general, right? What, what's he implying? It, it's an argument from the lesser to the greater. If even human covenants are certain and unchangeable, how much more a divine covenant by a perfect and unchangeable God? God, Paul is saying, is not like Darth Vader, right? He doesn't make a deal and then say, I've altered the deal. Pray that I don't alter it any farther, okay? It's from Empire Strikes Back, okay? Uh, God doesn't change. He doesn't change his promises. Once God says something, that's it. It's final. It is going to happen. His promises, his covenants are certain, secure, and like him, unchanging, God does not alter his promises based on us. God doesn't alter his promises based on our failures. He is not subject to passions. In other words, he he never needs to change his, his mind because all his promises and decisions are eternal and perfect. It's not that God doesn't change because he doesn't want to, but rather he doesn't change because he can't. For God to change would be to imply that that he's not perfect, and he is perfect. Every good and perfect gift, James tells us, is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Think about how this affects the way that we relate to him and understand him. Brothers and sisters, his promises in Christ are sure. We sang about that. They are a sure and steady anchor of the soul, unmoving, unwavering, because God is unmoving and unwavering. His promises are a sure foundation. The things we find in Scripture about him, his mercy and goodness and graciousness towards us in Christ are certain and unchanging. The blessing he promises us in Christ is certain and unchanging Our failures, your failures, your sins cannot 
and will not jeopardize the grace and blessings of God's toward you in Christ Jesus. This is our hope in Christ. God has graciously condescended to us in covenant to bless us and has sealed this covenant with the very blood of his son. It's been fulfilled and he's given us a guarantee, Ephesians says, the Holy Spirit as the down payment of the further promises that will be fulfilled. There there are no further stipulations. There are no further conditions. And what Paul's teaching here is it's not even possible that God could add anything else to it. He's already promised it. Nothing will annul it. Nothing will revoke it. If you are in Christ, you are in him forever. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. So step one, God's promises are irrevocable and unchanging. Step two, God promised blessing to Abraham before the law. So Paul's argument here is a temporal, chronological argument. Abraham, God promised things to Abraham before Moses came. Look, look what he says in verse 16 and 17. Now, the promises, the unchangeable promises, were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Then he makes this kind of parenthetical statement. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. We'll talk about that. Paul continues, this is what I mean. I love when Paul says that. It's very helpful. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. Paul's point here is simple and clear. Now, now we can learn a lot about how Paul reads the Old Testament, and we'll talk about that, but let's just look at his simple point first. God made unconditional promises to Abraham. We saw that. In, in multiple places in Genesis, we see that. We see the actual covenant ceremony in Genesis 15, which Joel read for us. God promised Abraham descendants, land, blessing. God promised to Abraham that he would bless the entire world through him. Okay, we get that. It's not, this is Paul's point, it's not until 430 years later that the Israelites come out of Egypt in the Exodus, God brings them to Sinai and covenants with Moses and Israel on that mountain. And it's when he gives them the two tablets of the law, okay? 430 years. That's a long time. 430 years ago, it's 1593. The world was a little different back then. It's a long time. That's Paul's point. His point is all of the conditions and the laws that God revealed to Moses on Sinai are good. They're great. They were to be obeyed by the Israelites. But here's his point. They don't annul or void the promise that God had previously made to Abraham. So you see that God unconditionally promised blessing to Abraham. And what Paul is saying is God didn't come over 430 years later and then add all these conditions to the promise. That's not what the Mosaic covenant is. It's not what it was. And that's not what it's doing. That's not how we as Christians are to relate to the Mosaic covenant. Remember, this is what they were claiming, these false teachers. These Gentiles, in order to be saved, in order to receive the blessing of Abraham, that's what everybody wants, had to obey the Mosaic law. Paul says that doesn't make any sense. These are two different covenants. Neither Gentiles nor Jews need to go through Moses in order to get to Abraham, in order to get to Jesus. 
The promise was made to Abraham, and the promise came without conditions. God doesn't change. He doesn't change his mind. Abraham, we saw this in Genesis 15, was counted righteous by faith, by believing God's promises, not by doing good works of obedience. He was not counted righteous by obeying the law. This becomes very clear when you actually read the passages where God promises things to Abraham. Genesis 12 is the first one. Now the Lord said to Abram, Abraham's a, Abram's a pagan. He's just this pagan guy going about his life. God just shows up in Genesis 12 and says this to him. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, Abram, all the families, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God just shows up to an idol-worshiping pagan and says, guess what, buddy? You, through you, I am going to bless the entire world And Abraham believed him. That's faith. Abraham trusted in God. And because of his faith in God's promises, he was counted righteous before God. And so God condescends to him in a covenant ceremony in Genesis 15. God takes the animals, separates them in half, which and passes through the animals alone, which is normally what would happen in a covenant. The animals would be cut in half. Both parties would walk between the pieces, signifying if we break this covenant, let us be like these animals, dead. God walks through it alone, signifying that the penalty for breaking this promise falls on God and God alone. Abram need do nothing. Now contrast that with the Mosaic covenant. God rescues his people out of slavery He graciously gives them his laws. But what is the covenant ceremony with the people? The people sacrifice the animals. Moses and the priests take the blood. And the blood doesn't go on God in this. They sprinkle the blood on themselves. Saying, the Israelites say together, all this we will do. Taking upon themselves to fulfill the stipulations of the covenant. Two completely different covenants that were made with different conditions in different ways. So you can't go back now and say, well, unless you're circumcised and keep the food laws and observe the Sabbath, like God's covenant with Moses, then you're not a part of Abraham's covenant. Those things are a part of God's covenant with Israel, not God's covenant with Abraham. A later covenant does not annul or make void a previous promise. That's Paul's point. Now, this was radical to the Jews of Paul's day. They saw the Mosaic Covenant as further clarifying the Abrahamic Covenant. They saw it as a continuation of the Abrahamic Covenant. Paul is saying here, no. These are two different covenants with different promises. That's fundamental to understanding the gospel, brothers and sisters. It's fundamental for understanding the Mosaic Law. In other words, the unconditional Abrahamic promise, the blessing to the nations and the offspring, is not changed or annulled by the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant is a parenthesis until the offspring of Abraham comes and claims what is rightfully promised to him. And then the offspring will dispense the blessing. The Mosaic Law had an expiration date 
built in. Paul gets into this in chap- further in chapter 3. God promised to Abraham and his offspring before the law came. Nothing that comes after can change it. Now let's look at that little parenthesis in verse 16. Look, look in your Bibles at verse 16. Look what Paul says. We get a little bit of insight here into how Paul is reading the Bible. He says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And then he says this. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ, who is Messiah, who is Jesus. Do you realize what he's saying? Paul's quoting, most likely Genesis 17 or Genesis 13, it's where we get this language, and to your offspring. And he's saying, that promise that God made to Abraham was a promise that he made to Jesus, the Messiah. That was a promise of Messiah. He's saying God was explicitly talking about the Messiah in that text. Genesis 17 says this, God is saying to Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring, okay, Paul's saying, that's Jesus, after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you, he's saying, that's Jesus, and I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. He's saying, that's, that's Jesus. But God was talking about Jesus there. He's saying that's because that's it's singular. It's not plural. It refers to one person. It's talking about Jesus. Paul is reading Genesis, and he's seeing Jesus in the text. Now, the text itself is not explicit. There's nothing in Genesis. You don't find the word Messiah. You don't find the word Jesus. But Paul says, no, it's, it's clear. It's right there. So here's the question. How did Paul get to that interpretation? How is Paul seeing Jesus in Genesis? And really the question is, can we read the Bible in the same way? Should we? People answer that question differently. But but here's essentially our options with how Paul got this. Either, number one, he illegitimately read Jesus into the text to fit his agenda. Okay, so he's kind of bending the text to fit what he wants to argue here in Galatians. That's what some unbelieving scholars say. Paul knows the original text is about Abraham and his family, but he, he spiritualizes it to be about Jesus because it helps his argument. In other words, he's, he's reading into the text. He's reading Jesus into the text. Okay, that's not what's going on here. The entire New Testament dictates against that view. Number two, basically our other option, is he is exegeting the text. In other words, he's, he's reading the Old Testament, understanding it in its context, and interpreting it correctly. That is what's happening here. And he's reading the Bible just like we can. This is how we should read the Old Testament, just like the Apostle Paul and every other writer of Holy Scripture. We should and must read the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus Christ. We should, we can, we must read the Bible just like the Apostle did. And this is all last week when we were talking about Isaac and the wells and and Pastor Rudolph showed us how we can see Christ in that. That's all he's doing. He's attempting to read the Bible like the Apostle Paul. That's what we're doing in our series in Genesis. And it's so wonderful and refreshing because we, we know that every week in the text we get to see and hear Christ himself. So what do we learn from Paul about how to do this here? Well, the main principle is this, and it's one that the reformers heralded it, heralded, 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 
Okay, got it. We must use Scripture to interpret Scripture. That almost sounds redundant. It sounds like, well, duh. But this, is, this will change the way that you read the Bible. Scripture interprets Scripture. So what Paul is doing here is he's looking at Genesis 17, Genesis 13. He's seen the singular offspring, and he's reading it through the lens of Isaiah, through the lens of the Psalms, through the lens of the other promises in Genesis. And he's looking back with the clarity that he has from understanding those books and saying, oh yeah, it's clear. It's about Jesus. Scripture interprets Scripture. The Bible itself is its own best commentary. We must understand individual texts and passages in light of the whole of Scripture. And specifically, now that we have the New Testament, we must understand every passage in light of Christ Jesus. So we read the individual passages in light of the whole story of redemption. That's what Paul's doing here in our text. Paul knew the Bible better than almost anyone. He knew the Old Testament almost better, well, probably better than anyone in his day. He knew that in Genesis 3.15, God had promised that a singular offspring would come and crush the serpent, thereby freeing humanity from the curse. God had said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, singular, and her offspring, singular. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Paul knew that this theme continues throughout Genesis. God promises to bless Abraham and his offspring, but it is always clear that the offspring that Abraham has is not the final offspring. He has Isaac and yet more is to come. The promise continues throughout the Old Testament until we meet King David. God promises David that one of his offspring, singular, will rule forever on his throne. Solomon comes along and he fulfills this sort of, but he fails and it's clear that he too is not the full and final offspring that we are waiting for. In Isaiah, we find that this offspring will be Emmanuel. God with us. We find that the government will be upon his shoulders. We find out that this offspring is going to be called the servant of the Most High, that he will be anointed with the Holy Spirit, that he will bring good news, that he will break the captives free. We find in Isaiah also that he will suffer for the sins of his people, that he will be the Son of God, that he will take their sins upon himself and purchase them with his own death. Not to even mention the entire book of Psalms testifies to this. The very reality on every page, which is why the book of Psalms is the most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament. Just read Peter's sermons in Acts and Paul's sermons in Acts, and they are just reading the entire Old Testament through the lens of the Psalms. Paul had read all this. He had seen the risen Christ. And so now he reads the Bible with new eyes, that is, with the eyes of faith. He comes now to understand, now filled with the Holy Spirit, that the entire Old Testament, the whole time, was pointing to Jesus Christ. And that shouldn't surprise us. What surprises me are there are people that say you shouldn't read the Old Testament like that. It's insane. Paul says in Ephesians that the mystery of Christ has been revealed to us. Why would you try to read the Old Testament without the revealed mystery? It doesn't make any sense. This is what Jesus himself taught. In Luke 24, after his resurrection, two of his disciples are walking along the road. He walks with them, 
They don't recognize him at first. And this is what he says to them later. They're concerned. These disciples are kind of bummed that, you know, they were following Jesus, but he died on the cross, and so now they're not really sure what to do. This is what Jesus says to them. Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe. What? All that the prophets have spoken. He's telling them, man, you're missing the point of the Old Testament. This is what Jesus says. Was it not necessary that the Christ, the Messiah, should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, that's Genesis, and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus said the Old Testament made it clear. You should have understood all of this in light of the Old Testament. The entire Bible is the story of the Messiah, the story of Jesus. The entire Bible is the story of God's creation, man's sin, and God's redemption through Christ. So no, Paul is not doing anything weird with the text here. And he's not reading anything into it that's not there. Paul is reading the Bible the way it should be read. He's interpreting Scripture with Scripture. We all should read the Bible like this. This is why, it's kind of funny, the more that you read the Bible, the more you understand the Bible. Because the more scripture you have in your mind to be able to interpret other scriptures. So the best cure, if you're having trouble understanding the Bible, is to read the Bible. And just be patient. Be patient. And just continue, continue, continue reading. And you will come to understand more and more by the grace of God. Of God. So as you read the Old Testament, ask yourself, before you ask, how does this apply to me? Ask yourself this, how does this point to Christ? How is this fulfilled in the coming of Christ? But think also of the theological significance of what Paul is saying here. When God made his promises to Abraham, the promises to bless the promises of many offspring, the promises that he would become a great nation. Paul's saying all of those promises were really to Jesus, ultimately. Jesus, and Jesus alone, is the true heir of the Abrahamic promises. What does this mean? The promise that God made to Abraham was the promise of the coming new covenant. This means, brothers and sisters, that these promises... All that stuff in Genesis that God promises to Abraham are our promises. Why? Because we are united to Christ by faith. This is the whole point of Galatians 3. He ends Galatians 3 by saying this, and we'll get there eventually. And if you are, not this morning, don't worry. Verse 29, he says, and if you are Christ's, in other words, your faith is in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. If your faith is in Christ, You are an heir, a legitimate, legal heir to the promises that God made to Abraham. Those are your promises. Those are our promises as the body of Christ. That in and of itself should help you to read the Old Testament with new eyes. This isn't just some old book about promises of some guy who lived 4,000 or however many years ago. These are promises to us in Christ Jesus. All of these promises are ours. We are heirs of the promise We've been united to him by faith. We've been adopted into the royal family and are in line to inherit the royal blessings. What are those blessings? The New Testament tells us, filling with the Holy Spirit of God himself, adoption into the family of God, justification, sanctification, resurrection, glorification, 
eternal life, to dwell in the new heavens and the new earth in the presence of God and to rule and reign with Christ forever. These blessings, these promises are ours in Christ Jesus. And remember what we said before, God's promises are irrevocable and unable to be voided or annulled. They are certain and sure because he is sure and unchanging. So this is Paul's argument. Step one, God's promises are irrevocable and unchangeable. Step two, God promised blessing to Abraham before the law. Step three, therefore, the blessing cannot come through law obedience. Okay, look, look again at verse 17. This is what I mean, he says. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. Verse 18, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Abraham did not receive God's blessing because of his obedience. Did he obey God? Yeah, he absolutely did. He received God's blessing, though, purely by the grace of God because God promised it to him. This is Genesis 15. Abraham was counted righteous. Why? Because of his obedience? No, because he believed God, his faith. Now, Paul's point here is massive for our understanding of the gospel. Remember what he's arguing against. These false teachers are preaching the gospel. They're preaching Christ, but they're mixing that with obedience. They're saying to be saved, yeah, you need to believe in Jesus, but you also have to obey, otherwise you're not saved. You've got to follow the law. They're saying that the way to be saved is faith plus works, belief in Jesus plus doing the right stuff. Paul's saying, no, it's actually just by faith. Look what Paul is saying here. He's contrasting these two things. These two things, law and promise, or law and gospel, are absolutely mutually exclusive. They are opposites that cannot be mixed. To mix any law obedience in with the gospel is to destroy the gospel. That's the whole point of Galatians. That's why in the very beginning of Galatians, he said they're distorting the gospel. They're perverting the gospel. They're preaching another gospel. Why? Because they're mixing in obedience to the requirements of the gospel. Paul says you cannot do that. To mix any amount of works into faith is to destroy the gospel. Either we receive the blessings, either we receive salvation by promise, that is by grace through faith, or we receive it by law. It cannot be both. You cannot mix them. Paul says the same thing in a different way in Romans 11. He says, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. This is critical. In in theology, this is is what's called the law-gospel distinction. And it's absolutely critical to understanding and preserving the gospel. Mixing together law and gospel, or faith and works, is what produces the heretical teaching that's here in Galatia. Mixing together law and gospel is what produces all of the things that is wrong, are wrong with Roman Catholicism. The system that's produced of faith and works and merit. It's a mixture of law and gospel. They're doing the same thing as the false teachers in Galatia in a different way. Mixing together law and gospel produces a gospel 
that says you're saved by grace, sure, but you stay saved by good works. It places the emphasis on you to earn and or maintain your salvation. That's law. That's not promise. That's not the gospel. Theodore Beza, he was the the man who came after John Calvin in Geneva, said this about this understanding of the law gospel. He said, for with good reason, we can say that ignorance of this distinction between law and gospel is one of the principal sources of the abuses which corrupted and still corrupt Christianity. Martin Luther put it this way, the distinction between law and gospel is the highest art in Christendom. And let's get a Baptist in there, Charles Spurgeon. He said, there is no point upon which men make greater mistakes than upon the relation which exists between the law and the gospel. It's critical. You see how critical this is to understanding. So, So let me just summarize what this means. The law, what do we mean by the law? The commands of God. Old Testament or new, doesn't matter. We're not talking about Old and New Testament here. Talking about law and gospel, the commands of God that require your obedience. That's law. Now hear me, the law is good. The law is holy. Why? Well, because it comes from God. He's good. He's holy. The commands of God are perfect and right and just. The law tells us what God requires, which is, again, God condescending to us in his grace. God graciously reveals to us in the law what pleases him. The law lights our path and shows us the way. But here's the problem. We're corrupted with sin. You and I are sinners. The law is good and right and perfect, and it shows us the way that is good and right and perfect. But we stand condemned because we are not good and right and perfect. The law shows us the way, but it does not give us the power to obey it. So this is the glory of the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ is the declaration of the finished work of Jesus Christ, our Savior, in our place. So here's another way to think about it. The law is the diagnosis. The gospel is the cure. Both are good. Both are necessary. But only one has the power to save. The law says, do this and live. The gospel says, it is finished. The law is something you do. The gospel is something you believe something you receive, something you accept, something you rest in by faith. Now, what happens if we, if we mess this up? Well, we've seen kind of at the doctrinal level, you get all sorts of heresies and works righteousness, Roman Catholicism, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, all of these mess this up and end up with a works righteousness gospel. But I'm assuming, maybe wrongly or maybe rightly, not many of you are tempted towards those things. We are not necessarily tempted or, or liable to misunderstand at a doctrinal level. We get more messed up at a practical, personal level. So what are some signs that you might be doing this? Well, here, here's just a couple things I was thinking through. If you think in any way that you have to earn your salvation or contribute to it at all, you've, you've mixed up law and gospel. You, you can't contribute anything. It's impossible. The law requires perfect, perpetual, personal obedience. You've failed, I've failed in every one of those categories. 
Jesus Christ has succeeded in every one of those categories. The only way that you are counted righteous is not by your effort, but by your faith in Christ. Number two, and here's where I think a lot of us get messed up. You feel as if you have to prove yourself to God in your sanctification. You understand that you're saved by grace, but you also feel in your heart of hearts that if you don't try hard enough and conquer your sin in your own power, it probably means that you're not saved. False. That's, that's law. Sanctification, just like justification, is by grace through faith in the gospel of Christ. It is a work of the Spirit of God. It's all of grace. You do not need to, nor can you, prove yourself to God. Christ did that for you, brothers and sisters. He has declared you righteous and perfect in Jesus Christ. He has washed away your sins, past, present, and future. He has adopted you into his family. You do not need to prove yourself, and you can't. Now, should you seek to forsake the sin in your life? Should you seek to live in holiness according to his commands? Absolutely. Absolutely. But you must do so out of gratitude, not out of guilt. You must do so motivated by grace, not motivated by fear of condemnation. In other words, it must be your satisfaction and joy in the gospel that fuels your obedience to God's law. Now, there are many other signs that we could talk about that law and gospel have become confused and will continue as we continue in Galatians. Legalistic heart, that's a sign of mixing law and gospel. Paul will ultimately come to say one of the signs that, that we're understanding the gospel correctly is the fruit of the Spirit is coming out of our life. So ironically, the person who is fully reliant and resting in Christ and not on their works is the person who begins to fulfill the law in their life because of the power of the Holy Spirit. But that's Galatians 5. So, brothers and sisters, I pray that this would be an encouragement to you to trust in the grace of God that is presented to us in the gospel. Believe it. Rest in it. When your heart is weary in your fight against sin, when you feel the condemnation of the law hanging over you, look to Christ. Look to Christ. And Martin Luther said, understanding the distinction of law and gospel allows me to look to Satan and say, kiss my backside. That's what Martin Luther said. Because understanding the gospel, when Satan brings those accusations, allows you to say, I don't care. I'm not under law. Go talk to Jesus. Remember the sure and certain promises of God that are yours by faith in Jesus. The blood of God's own son was poured out for you. His very body broken for you that you might have eternal life. He earned your salvation when you couldn't. He has declared you his. He has declared you righteous. So rest in that hope and obey him in light of that. To finish the Baptist Puritan John Bunyan wrote a little two-line poem about this, and I want to close with this, and I, I pray that this would stick in your mind. It so beautifully and concisely summarizes this. This is what he wrote. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Amen.